Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome. Coming up, the man with more sheds on his patch than anyone else. He's also the Federal Minister for Regional Health, Regional Communications and Local Government. Mark Coulton will be joining us shortly. By popular demand, we sit down with our Irish men's shed brothers again. Professor John McDonald talks about what older shedders can get from younger shedders and vice versa. And as my old dad used to say, Stuart is going to talk about the wisdom that gets handed down through the generations, through sayings, quotes and adages. And Rip Woodchip will share his favourite bush wisdom on that very topic. All that and a whole lot more ahead here on The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney and we're joined by the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association, David Helmers. Hello, David. Hello, Aaron. How's your week been, mate? Uh, had some fun with the idea of uh, bush wisdom or things grandpa used to say. Have you got one that uh, sticks in your memory? Uh, look, there's probably not a saying that um, really sticks in my memory, but there is a probably a lot of ethical things that my father and my mother yeah. taught me. And I think, you know, I grew, I grew up in small business and, you know, for the time I was five years old through to the time I was 30, I was working in the family bakeries and I still value this today. As my father used to say, and we used to practice, he always said to me, um, never employ people to do what you don't want to do. Just employ them to do what you can't do. Many hours every day was spent cleaning the bakery and I used to say to dad, can't we hire someone to do this? He'd say, no, we can clean the floors and clean the machineries. We hire the people to do things we can't do, like accounting and all that type of thing. So, And that's a philosophy I still carry. If I can do it myself, I will do it myself and not pay people. I can mow a lawn, I'll mow the lawn. I can paint a house, I'll paint the house. So it's something I've always applied by, mate. That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that said quite like that, but that makes a lot of sense. And in small business, I think there'd be a lot of people listening who have been through that process where pretty much you're you're multi-skilled, don't you? You you learn to do everything. You do. And I think um, in the changing economic climate, there'll be a lot more people in small businesses taking that type of ethos, that, that approach to it. On how they they operate, and I think they might have to, you know, in in tougher financial times. Fascinating. Well, we will have some fun with that topic a little later in this episode. The mailbag is bulging again this week. Please write to our email at any time. The Shed Wireless at menshed.net. A shout out to Maureen Menshed. They just said thank you for a wonderful and informative service talking about the Shed Wireless. Thank you to the Men's Shed at Moree. I was actually up at Moree Men's Shed for the opening of the new shed. Um, I, can't, I think it was late last year, Aaron. And yeah, it's a fantastic little shack they've got there. I wouldn't call it a little shack, actually. It's a, a castle <laughs> of a Men's Shed on the, on the showgrounds there. And it, very timely because they were in a building on the other side of the showgrounds, which was very prone to flooding. I think they've been flooded out a few times there. So they moved to the other side above the high tide mark. Mate. So a big shout out to the guys at Maury. Quite fond of the 
town of Moree. Used to spend quite a time, a lot of time up there in my younger days. I did as well, and it's interesting that sheds on showgrounds is a bit of a theme that'll emerge over the course of this episode as well as we visit another one that fits that description. The poetry is flowing in as well into the mailbag, and there's this. So I'll just read it out because it's self-explanatory. In October, well before the hot, smoky, devastating summer of 2019-2020, I bought a possum habitat box from my local men's shed at Leichhardt in Sydney's Inner West. It was a gift for friends who just bought a farm on the New South Wales south coast. On our way to their farm, we visited my parents-in-law in in Jeringong. I got the possum box out of the car and showed my father-in-law, who's a men's shedder, I found the Habitat box plans on his iPad and emailed them to him, and he was keen to suggest the boxes as a project for his local men's shed. Then the summer came, the summer of bushfires, of course, so many animals lost, so many people and animals displaced, so many habitats lost, and then, six months later, in the midst of a global pandemic, an email arrived from my father-in-law. It was a note with pictures of the first batch of 65 habitat boxes made by the men's shedders and delivered to Wildlife Rescue South Coast at Nowra. So the perfect storm. LJ McKay from Stanmore in New South Wales, thank you for that correspondence, says many good wishes to all the shedders on their return to their habitats in this Men's Health Week. What a brilliant note. What a great story. And it... it, (laughs) If there's such a thing as serendipity in those terrible bushfires, that's just a, a beautiful set of circumstances where uh, a need was met by an opportunity. I think building bird boxes, breeding boxes, habitat boxes is a bit of a, a staple of the men's sheds at the moment. And uh, I was at um, one shed in the Central Coast, so I think they built something like 500 of them. So, And I think there's a lot more to come. We've been working with a few different organisations um, and then the COVID hit, of course, but um, there's going to be a, a big demand for them in the coming you know, few months to a year, I suppose. So the sheds will be very busy building more boxes. Next up on the Shed Wireless, we are going to meet Mark Coulton. And for a number of reasons, David, he's somebody who you have to interact with a fair bit. Yeah, look, I've known Mark... Uh, since way back 2007 when he first became the member for Parks and said it's a big patch of land and he holds the title of having more sheds in his electorate than any other politician and he's been a big supporter of the sheds for many, many years and he along with uh, Chris Hayes formed initially back in, oh, I think it was about 2012, the uh, bipartisan friendship group called the Friends of Men's Sheds um, in parliament parliament and he's been a great supporter ever since and i've uh, had quite a lot to do with mark over the years he's a great bloke and a big supporter of the men's shed movement well let's meet him you're listening to the shed wireless federal member for parks mark coulton has more men's sheds in his electorate than any other parliamentarian That's not so surprising when you learn the electorate of parks covers an area of, wait for it, 393,413 square kilometres or approximately 49% of the state of New South Wales. But sheds are also very much part of his patch as Minister for Regional Health, Regional Communications and Local Government. And he's had a long association as co-chair of the Bipartisan Friendship Group of Men's Sheds in Parliament. 
So we thought it'd be timely to get Mark's take on where we're at right now. Welcome to the Shed Wireless, Mark. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. There's a definite sense of optimism that has emerged post-COVID, post-drought, post-bushfires. Things are feeling a little more positive right now, yeah? Yes, I think probably post-drought as much as anything, but although it's a little early to say the drought's over, but we've certainly seen uh, a wonderful uh, autumn uh, in my electorate. Uh, most places, uh, not, not the complete far west is still quite dry, but most places have had some relief. And so uh, that uh, certainly puts people in a, in a cheerier frame of mind. And, uh, you know, quite frankly... Uh, I would have been worried about the, you know, the mental health of a lot of my people if they were dealing with coronavirus and the drought and in some areas the fires as well. So I think in, uh, in some ways the fact that uh, we are now having a bit of a break in the season uh, I think uh, is giving us a bit more um, uh, hope and uh, a bit more uh, opportunity to deal with the uh, coronavirus. I don't think we're quite post-coronavirus yet. I think that... Uh, uh, we've done a great job, um, when I say we, the Australian people, uh, uh, you know, there's been a lot of sacrifices made to keep the level of infection down. Uh, we've seen some relaxation uh, of, of movements uh, uh, and uh, you know, we'll be watching very closely because it's coinciding with the flu season. So I think we're in a bit of a, a watch and see for the next month, but uh, at this stage I think we could be pretty pleased with where we are. What have the last few months been like for you personally? It's I know there's been a lot of demands. People have needed their political leaders more than ever, and yet you're a human being as well, and so subject to all the same constraints as the rest of us. Yeah, look, uh, on a personal front, it's been rather interesting. I've been in this job now for you know, 12 and a half years and a bit over, and um, I've just had the most uh, consecutive nights in my own house uh, since I took this on, uh, and uh, you know, so I'm, I'm hooked up to the to the SkyMaster satellite service, uh, and through that I've been doing all my phone calls, Zoom video conferencing, and uh, uh, you know I had 180 rural doctors uh, on a on a teleconference one night uh, as part of the rural health team, uh, the health team with Greg Hunt and uh, Brendan Murphy, the uh, uh, the chief medical officer uh, at at the height of the crisis daily telephone hookups uh, with, uh, with uh, the department and my ministerial colleagues, uh, weekly teleconferences with the rural um, health uh, groups, which are you know, doctors, uh, allied health workers, indigenous health workers, uh, yeah, generally about 20 or 30 every night on that. Uh, and uh, you know, even last Saturday, I spoke at the Queensland Rural uh, Doctors Association annual conference, which was a virtual conference, and um, uh, I did that from my, uh, my lounge room at Warrialda. So uh, it's certainly um, been quite frantic, uh, a lot of work happening because you know, I've been dealing with local government ministers, uh, local government associations, as well as uh, issues around telecommunications in my other portfolio. So it has been quite busy, but I haven't... Uh, uh, I've been home every day, uh, mostly, uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, and, you know, not being face-to-face in my electorate, which is very different to what I would normally be doing. Are you a tie and jacket and stubbies man, or do you go the full suit when you're on your Zoom conference? I, I can confess to a tie, uh, a tidy shirt and a 
pajama bottom. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what the term for that is? Humphrey B. Bearing, where you got the top half organised and the bottom half they call that Humphrey B. Bearing. Well, <laughs> there's probably more similarities than you'd like to think about with Mount Humphrey, actually, but anyway, we, we might leave that one be. Indeed. <laughs> Just before we move on to the next subject, you've raised there both telehealth and virtual business, and as the Minister for Regional Communications and Regional Health, presumably this whole event has shone a further spotlight on the importance of those things to rural and regional Australia. Yeah, look, we've, we've actually seen uh, in the combination of sort of two things, uh, uh, you know, the, we, we sort of had a, a plan to, to introduce telehealth that was going to take some years and basically got introduced in a couple of weeks and it's been incredibly uh, successful while people have been somewhat nervous to... Um, to go to their GP in the early stages, and so they were. There's been a lot of uh, take up of telehealth. I've got to say now that the, the message has changed somewhat, and uh, uh, there, there has probably uh, pendulums gone a bit too far the other way, Aaron. And we are concerned now that people who need to be going to see their doctor, uh, whether they're dealing with a chronic health condition or maybe something that's happened, you know, more recently, um, you know, it's it's perfectly safe to go to your doctor now and. Uh, and uh, and have that face to face consultation, but during the you know that we didn't know uh, when this started, we didn't know if we weren't going to have the same issues as uh, as the United States, China, or Britain or Spain, uh, where they've had massive levels of infection. And so uh, you know we were very very cautious at the start, uh, and 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 the telecommunications uh, tied up with health was very very important that we did keep people in touch, but could keep them safe at the same time. Connected to that aspect of your work is the process of restarting normality, in inverted commas. That includes shedding, of course. And from an AMSA Men's Shed Association perspective, it would be lovely to put out one three-line memo saying, here's when we open. But there's a huge level of complexity, isn't there? Yeah, look, uh, particularly with uh, with Men's Sheds, I think uh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm a very regular visitor to Men's Sheds and they... They actually are quite sticklers uh, for for protocol and OH and S issues. You know, they've I, I don't know whether it's part of the regulations, but most of them have a, a manager and a safety officer. So it would be quite possible, I think, to get started as long as you know there was the, the appropriate distancing done. But on the flip side of that, uh, a lot of uh, members of Medsheds are in the in the most vulnerable group to uh, coronavirus, and so. Uh, you know, it is a it, it is a bit of a, a vexed uh, situation, and uh, my personal belief is that if we can get through the next month or so, uh, following on so you know with people uh, being in, in more larger public groups, and we saw some big large public groups uh, uh, with the protests in the capital cities, uh, then um, you know I think we will see a further relaxation, and I know uh, one of the reasons men's sheds uh, exist and are so popular is because people who are quite often lonely uh, have an outlet to uh, to go and catch up in a yarn and uh, uh, they've been denied that now for a long time and I think uh, uh, that that is impacting on on many people and so my feeling would be that as soon as it's feasible to uh, to go back and, uh, and and meet and I think it's quite possible that uh, that can be done and still be quite careful with uh, the protocols in place, and I think the men's heads have got the discipline to do that. So I would hope that um, 
sooner rather than later. But I think we've just probably got a couple of weeks to get through first. Given all of your connections to the sheds and also your ministerial portfolios, what would you like shedders to understand? What's giving you concern? What's giving you hope uh, as we go forward? What's top of your agenda? Okay, so my concern is that um, uh, that there's a belief that we've beaten this virus, um, that it's you know that it was a big threat and, and we've beaten it, and uh, that, that's sadly not correct. Uh, what we've done is that we've controlled it, but it's still there. We still have no uh, uh, cure for it, uh, and uh, and basically, um, uh, I, I think uh, you know. 80 or 90 percent of the people who, who who are very badly impacted and pass away are over the age of 70 and so uh, I think we've got to keep that in mind and, and regional Australia has done really well uh, you know we haven't uh, there's a bit of a belief uh, uh, in some of my communities that uh, look it's not really a problem for a country town it's more of a city-based thing but we have seen uh, you know, uh, uh, one person basically coming back to northwest Tasmania, and within a matter of weeks, we had a, a whole hospital evacuated, uh, had to be cleansed uh, by the army. Uh, we had five thousand people locked up in isolation uh, in a in a you know in Burnie and uh, and Devonport up there in northern Tasmania. And so, uh, while we're pretty good at the moment, country towns are vulnerable. Um, we do have processes in place. We've got respiratory clinics. We've got stacks of respirators. We've got uh, retrieval uh, organised with the Royal Flying Doctor Service and Care Flight. So we are prepared. Uh, but uh, the cold and flu season is just starting to impact, and uh, and so you know it's a bit of a a bit of a difficult time at the moment. You know, I'm very hopeful that we will manage to keep our uh, level of um, uh, infection low like we have but uh, I think it would be very uh, dangerous to think that we've actually beaten this and we can just go back to normal. The shed wireless is heard in the cities and in regional areas both but I'm curious on your take of things. I reckon that our shedders in regional and rural Australia would fall into two categories. One is those who say don't tell them in the big smoke about what we've got out here. We're perfectly fine and we don't want them but then there's another group that says we would like the idea of more people relocating into uh, regional and rural Australia because of what that would do for the economy and resources and focus. What do you think this whole last six months will mean for the future of rural and regional Australia? Yeah, so um, I think rural and regional Australia has come out of, is coming through this, I should say, better way of putting it, uh, looking like an attractive place to be uh, because, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, for people working, uh, a lot of the misconception that um, you uh, you have to be, uh, you know, in a capital city to uh, be connected to a workplace, a lot of those myths have been dispelled. A lot of the myths that uh, telecommunications were so poor in the bush that you couldn't operate there, and uh, while it's not perfect, um, you know, most people have done that. Um, and, and so largely in the regional Australia, it's been business as usual except... For hospitality, uh, tourism, uh, and uh, and and in many cases retail, and so with the international borders being um, a long way um, uh, from from opening, and uh, and even some of the state borders still being quite restricted, I think there's an opportunity for uh, 
you know, people to, uh, to, to come and visit the bush uh, in the short term because it's a good place for a holiday and there's uh, great, uh, uh, you know, great things to do. Uh, normally the caravan parks in, uh, in, in my towns like, uh, you know, Lightning Ridge and, uh, you know, Moree, Walgett, um, Burke, uh, Brewarna uh, would be chock-a-block full of, uh, you know, uh, the, the grey nomads that are, that are touring around in the winter months. Uh, parked at the mineral bores baths or, or a whole range of things like that. So I, I'm hopeful that those folks will come back, uh, you know, if, we, if the infection rate stays low. And then ultimately, I would like to see uh, uh, people that uh, could come back. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I've missed uh, in the early stages of this was contact with my grandkids. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, I've got um, one, one of my daughters and her family have moved to back from Sydney back to a country town and the other one's in the process of doing that. And so uh, I think that, um, you know, it's great for us. We'll have grandkids closer. And I think there'll be a lot of your listeners would be in the same boat where families have gone off to, a, to the city because that's where the work was. Um, yeah, I think many of them might want to come back to uh, where they grew up, uh, have the same wonderful lifestyle uh, that they had, but still be able to be connected to... Uh, a job that's uh, high, highly paid and uh, important. You know, I, I was involved in the expenditure review committee of cabinet of the Australian Parliament, uh, having my say uh, uh, on a secure video link from an office in Moree. Uh, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd be surprised if those sort of meetings now ever revert, where I would have to go to Canberra, which would be a three-day, a three-day uh, uh, expedition, a day down, a day at a meeting, and a day back when you can just go to, into your office and do it in an hour. So I actually think uh, we, we uh, have an opportunity in the regions for uh, uh, people to actually look at the, the benefits of uh, being five minutes from work, uh, five minutes from, uh, from the shops, five minutes from sport, uh, and even in some cases uh, being at work if you're working from home. So, I, I, you know, I am a bit of a Pollyanna, but I actually think there's an opportunity uh, for, for a resurgence of the regions after this. Well, as someone who's spent his life in regional Australia preaching to the choir here, I can assure you, but there is a strong argument that there's probably been nowhere in the world, maybe New Zealand would have an argument, maybe a couple of the Pacific Islands would have an argument, but there's virtually been nowhere in the world better to be than rural or regional Australia in the last six months. Yeah, look, uh, I was speaking to uh, um, um, you know David Helmers, who you're all familiar with, and he was saying that the uh, you know the, the the connection that the sheds have got with the sheds in Ireland, uh, the death rate over there, even you know as late as last week, has still been quite horrendous. And uh, you know New York has a similar population to Australia, and admittedly we're spread out a bit more, but you know they've had uh, thousands of deaths uh, there. And uh, you, you know, and we, you know, quite frankly, you know, we were expecting uh, we would be dealing with similar things here, and. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, I think it's a combination of some good decisions by government, but the, the real reason we've done this is that the Australian people have stepped up uh, and, and understood what needed to be done. And, uh, and I think if there's a little bit of nervousness now is that maybe some people in our community uh, are starting to believe that this was a bit of a phony sort of a war and, uh, and, and you know, we'll just go back to the way things were. And uh, uh, to my mind, that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah, they, uh, they just want to make a phone call or an email overseas and they'll get a new perspective. 
Well, I know that all of our listeners, some are back in sheds, some are counting down, some are just dipping their toe in the water. It's a different experience wherever you are across Australia right now. But I get the sense that you never really took for granted having a a barbecue at a shed, but it's going to have a special resonance the next time you get to do it, Mark. Yeah, I really enjoy it. And they're all so different, you know. Uh, I tell you what, I've never been in a shed where I haven't been offered a cup of coffee. Uh, 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 I was across at the, uh, it's not in my electorate now, but I had a very, have a very close relationship with Wellington. And they had a, I think he was an ex-merchant uh, seaman uh, as a member, and they, uh, he used to cook a hot meal. <laughs> uh, so, so it was always a good uh, opportunity to go to Wello and, uh, and catch up with uh, those folks. But right across, you know, uh, I've got, and, and you know, a shout out to the sheds because on the issue of, of, of men's health, uh, they really are the flag bearers uh, for, for, you know, particularly older men. And, uh, you know, I've been to health forums uh, organised by the Dubbo Shed. Uh, uh, there's been, you know, Lightning Ridge uh, um, up in the northern part of my patch have, have done the same thing. Uh, one out of Grawan in the Opal Fields, uh, uh, right across and they're all a little bit different uh, you know we've got the the uh, the rusty club at Baradine and uh, uh, they they're into uh, you know antique machinery and restoring things like that and uh, you know they, they've all sort of cut out their own niche but uh, that's one thing I have missed I've got to say as much as uh, I've enjoyed being home with my wife uh, and it's uh, uh, been lo- lovely uh, in her company all the time but it is uh, looking forward to get out and uh, and catching up with the sheds because um, they, they bring such an interest. You know, uh, the fascinating thing is uh, uh, I know in my own hometown of Warrialda, and this is going back, it's the people are no longer there, but there was a couple of guys uh, turned up at the shed. And Warrialda's got 1,200 people, right? Uh, they, they lived in the district all their lives and didn't know each other uh, and, until they joined the shed. And, uh, and so uh, that's what's so great about them. And it brings people who have served in the military. It brings people who have worked in an office, uh, people who have you know, worked uh, with their hands, and they all come together uh, and bring those different passes and backgrounds, uh, uh, past and backgrounds to the uh, shed. So uh, it's always fantastic for me to go and visit them. Well, we've always mattered, as you just said. I think we're going to matter more than ever in the weeks, months and years ahead. Federal Member for Parks, Mark Coulton, the man with the most men sheds in his electorate than anyone else. Thanks so much for giving us a bit of your precious time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it with Rip Woodchip. G'day, Shedders! How are you all going today? Rip Woodchip here. I've just been out taking the grandson for a driving lesson around the paddock in the ute. So forgive me if I sound a little bit off-key, but my nerves just aren't what they used to be, you know. It used to take a fair bit to rattle me, but now a couple of laps with Fangio out there has me shaking like a dog shit and hammer handles. I love spending time with the young fella, though, and I use the time to share some of my innate wisdom with him. Which gets me to thinking, about me thinking, and how I come to think what I think, and do what I do. Which in turn makes me think, how do I know what I know? You know? I'm not talking about me reading, writing, arithmetic. That's the stuff they learns in school. On the days that I went anyway. I'm talking about the stuff they don't teach in school. Other bits and pieces. The information that gets handed down from generation to generation. Those life lessons. 
from those who have gone before us. Kind of like how our Indigenous brothers passed on stories of the Dreamtime. But in my case, those alleged occasions didn't always seem to be practical or logically put. It seemed like between my old man and my grandfather, they'd had a saying for just about everything. They were never fully explained at the time, and are still in some ways downright confusing. But, in time, made perfectly good sense and served me great little life lessons. You know those one-liners that seem to roll off your tongue now without even thinking about it? Because I was hardwired into your brain when you were a young'un? And now, like my father, and his father before him, I have a head full of useless information, and I feel that it's my responsibility to pass some down the line. There was some prophetic stuff, like, when it came to money, you'd say, a penny earned is a penny saved. Or 5% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And the harder I work, the luckier I get. Or when it came to work, it was do it once and do it properly. Measure twice, cut once. And a good tradesman never blames his tools. Rules to live by, you know. And he was no Dr Phil, but sometimes he knew exactly just what to say at times. I'd fly off the handle about something and he'd say, Many a man has broken his nose with naught but the flapping of his own tongue. That was one of my favourites. But then there were some little sayings that to this day still leaves me scratching my head a little bit. I can't tell you how many times I tried to stick my elbow in my ear because that's the biggest thing I was allowed to put in there. And the amount of times my grandfather went to see a man about a dog, I thought he was planning to start a boarding kennel. And I still to this day have no clue, let alone a use, for a wigwong for a goose's bridle. But I reckon I must have about 50 of them in the shed. And he had this unique way of displaying his affection and pride in me at times. He'd say I was useful as a pocket in the back of a shirt. <laughs> God bless him. But I knew it was all in jest. Well, I think it was anyway. Do as I say, not as I do was another. And I guess he was just doing his best to bring me up a better bloke than he was, I guess. And that's what we all hope for our kids, isn't it? This irreverent logic that we pass on is a gift of time and knowledge for the ages. And a tradition that I hope lasts many generations to come. Anyway, Shedders, I'm a bit behind on me chores now, so I better go get into it, or it'll be hot tongue and cold bum for dinner tonight. All right, Shedders, catch you next week. See you guys. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy with the Shed Wireless. Love many, trust few, always paddle your own canoe. I can remember my year five teacher saying that that was a piece of wisdom that he had lived his life by. And I thought it was pretty good until I mentioned it to my mum and she said, well, if you only ever paddle your own canoe, you're going to have a terrible life because you need other people to support you and then you need to paddle other people's canoe. Nevertheless, it was an old saying that got me thinking about living well and what matters. And these little adages are a distilled piece of wisdom that's designed to make you think about what's really important in life. Well, we like to have a regular yarn with Stuart Torrance, the AMSA Men's Health Project Officer, about living well. And he's with us now. Hello, Stuart. How are you, Aaron? I am very well, thank you. If I say to you, bush wisdom or folk adages, what's the first one that pops in your head? Uh, Don't assume. To assume makes an ass out of you and me. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I remember hearing that one in my childhood as well because it's a play on the like the actual word, right? The spelling of the word. Yeah, and and um, I must admit, I assume all the time, and uh, and people love to pull me up by using "don't assume, assume, Stuart." To assume makes, and that's out of you or me. And <laughs> we live by these sayings; we've been brought up on them. Um, when you poised that we were going to discuss this subject this morning, I was excited. It was like, oh, how many can I pull up? I have pulled up thousands of them. Let's just riff on a few. Maybe you can share a few. And and between us, we'll see if we can work out what the message in the adage is. Yeah, you want to do that? Fantastic. All right, fire away. Uh, never attribute malice to that which can adequately be explained by stupidity. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that too. That's like a, a a relative of Occam's razor, the idea that of all the possible things that could be true, the simplest answer is probably the correct one. Yeah. Uh, it's a near cousin of that, isn't it? You know, you're lying there yeah. and you think of all of these and maybe she said to him that, and then that was because they used to date and blah, blah, blah. And he go, no, he just forgot what time it was, you know. <laughs> so that's a beauty. That's a beauty. Okay. How about this one? If the grass is greener on the other side, there's probably more manure there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard that, but I like it. <laughs> What do you think that one's trying to tell us? Basically, um, if, if it's greener over there, you, you know, it's obviously more attractive, but, you know, you're going to get yourself into a lot of poop. Yeah, well, and do you know what it evoked in me is this mm. idea of social media as well, you know, where somebody's always in their best outfit sipping a cocktail or, you know, here I am out with this person or whatever. And you go, look at their life. Look how green the grass is in their life. And you go, yeah. Yeah, but it might there might be a bit of BS filtered over the top of it. You know what I mean? So I might be projecting an image at you that isn't one hundred percent accurate. Well, talking about image, let me run this one by you. With regards to the opposite sex, if you look hungry, you'll starve. <laughs> oh, <I'm sorry. laughs> oh, I can do this. We're, we're going to have a spin-off podcast series. Okay, we're just going to do this but nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you could you could go on for for weeks, months. I I have found so many, and I go. I've said that before in my life. I don't believe it's here. I I didn't remember that. You know, share your wisdom and uh, learn to let go. You know, all these nice, warm, fuzzy feeling stuff. Don't judge a, a book by its cover. Opposites attract. Yeah. Uh, many hands make light work. Personally, when it gets down to my own life, I, I like ones like happiness is a choice. Everything else is a matter of perspective. Yes. There's a variation. You can't control reality. You can only control your reaction to it. Mm. Yeah. That, that's a very yeah. similar idea to happiness is a choice in that, okay, if you get a bit of bad news or whatever else, there's nothing you can do about that, but you can control what happens next. Yeah. You can take a positive approach or a negative approach. This is why I think it's appropriate that we're talking about this in the context of uh, living well and a health mm. uh, discussion is that these things exist as almost like pocket reminders of what matters, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, here's one for you. You've got a daughter, right? I've got two of them. Strive to be the man you want your daughter to marry. <laughs> I 
did a post on Facebook a couple of years ago saying, I'm currently peeling the shells off pistachios and popping them into the mouth of my three-year-old. Good luck to the poor bugger who has to marry her sometime. <laughs> <laughs> You've made a rod for his back. <laughs> I've made a rod for his back. Uh, but it also reminds me of the Newcastle Knights, the rugby league team. Yeah, They have above the door as they run out, they tap it as they run through and it is a saying, be the player that other players want to play with. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Which is a which is a very similar idea. Um the be the change you want to see in the world again is a close relation to that idea, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. All all these uh, th- things are, are really good, warm, fuzzies. But do they actually change us? Do they actually make a difference in our lives is, is, is the question that pops to my mind. And I was reading this morning on LinkedIn, Sophie Scott, a medical reporter for the ABC. Hmm. She posted something very interesting, which I, I, um, I'd like to quote. We can only change and make these changes stick when we change the narrative that's running through our minds and mindset. Since I've been writing about positive psychology, she writes, I hear so many stories from people who want to make changes in their lives and adopt new habits, but they hang on the stories from their past subconscious beliefs they hold about themselves. Maybe it's something you might have been told as a kid that you have been burdened with as a belief and still hold as true. All these sayings, there's a lot of negatives, just as much as there are positives out there. Uh, and we could bounce around all, all sorts of things, but do they make a change in, in our lives and, and our perspective? Is it uh, a saying that upholds us, encourages us, helps us grow, helps us be a better person? Mm. Or is it uh, something that maybe gives us a negative outlook on life? There's plenty of those as well. I think that's really profound and Again, that observation from you evokes the idea in me of these days they say good parenting is you don't say you're a naughty boy. Mm. You said, oh, dear, you're such a good boy and you just did a naughty thing, yeah. right? Mm. And then and then that stops them internalising. That they are naughty. The naughty boy doesn't become who they are and that doesn't become the story that they tell themselves yeah. so that 45 years from now they're trying to unpack what you just discussed from yeah, Sophie. Yeah. In many ways, they do create our reality, don't they? Take the, the, the saying, uh, every person's experienced something that you haven't. The person you're about to engage with has a different perspective, has had different experience, ha- has different knowledge to what you have. And if you go in barging and, and, and saying only what you know and what you feel and not listening to both sides of the story, you're going to miss some... Um, fantastic information that could help you grow and be a better person, you know, will stand you in good stead later in life. I I don't know how we break that down into a one-liner, but that's a piece of wisdom right there that you shared as well. And and can I just add to that? Go on. Another person's experience doesn't diminish yours. You know what I mean? So much of the discourse that I see now is because you had a, an experience, mine's got to be either way better or way worse or otherwise somehow I'm lesser than you. No, no, you're on your journey. I'm on my journey and they're equally legitimate Yeah, and we can enhance each other's by talking, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do it every time I talk to you, Aaron. <laughs> 
<laughs> back at you. It always <laughs> leaves me with a smile on my face and maybe just a tiny little bit smarter than I was 10 or 11 minutes ago. Lovely to talk to you with my friend. Enjoy those adages. You know what? We, we might make it a habit of dropping one of these in every week just so that we can play around with them because they're great fun. Will it be great if someone sent in a few pearlers? What a great idea. What's your favourite? If you go to menshed.org and go to the shed online, it would be great to put together a shed-based list of these, almost uh, shed wisdom. Wisdom to live by. Wisdom to live by. And and again, you can push back against them. You can say, like my mum did about love many, trust you, always battle your own canoe. You might think they're a terrible idea, but if you've got one, please share it with us and we might well share it here on the Shed Wireless in the weeks ahead as well. Thank you, Stu. Lovely to talk to you as always, mate. No worries. Thanks, Aaron. Take care. Stuart Torrance there, AMSA Men's Health Project Officer. Send it in to themenshed.org. Just look over on the right-hand side and you'll see the Men's Shed online. You can follow your nose from there. Of course, you do always have the opportunity of just dropping us an email directly, theshedwireless at menshed.net. You're listening to The Shed Wireless. I visited a shed in another state a few months ago and I walked in there and there was a shedder who, it's fair to say, had a sweat up doing not very much. He had really bad hips. It meant that every movement was hard work. He was puffing, but he was still spending lots of time down at the shed. Why? Professor John McDonald is a patron of the Australian Men's Shed Association and the Director of Men's Health at Western Sydney University. We're going to talk today not about the shed movement, but a movement in the shed. Hello, Professor. Hello there, Alan. Good to speak to you again. And you, for that gentleman in particular, and I, I, I won't name him, he probably knows who he is, but it would be much easier for him to pay his $14 a month and stay on his armchair and binge watch Netflix round the clock, why would he put himself through the pain and the discomfort to get around the shed for hours every day? Yeah, well, you know the answers better probably, you know it know better than me, but and many of the listeners will, will recognise and at least intuitively understand why, because they've felt it themselves. Even in days when they're not feeling 100%, I don't feel particularly like making the effort to go when they do go and they feel the benefit, then they know, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. It's, um, it, okay, if I have to be academic, in a, it's part of the human condition to be social, to be part of something. And the society we live in has made us all into individuals, individuals who consume, who, who spend money at Coles or Woolies or whatever, and who pay our rent and who live in their own houses. Houses are very important, but I mean, who live often not just because of the, the virus, the COVID-19, but who live in isolation from other people. And that's not what human beings are about. We are essentially human beings. And one of the things that has been said in this time of, because we're talking the time of the, the virus um, spreading, is I, I heard someone even on the radio say, at least now we're recognizing that for a famous person, the prime minister of another country said, there's no such thing as society, just individuals. How rubbish that is. Oh, so rubbish. The, the Australian commentator was nowadays in 2020 saying it is totally rubbish. We are, we are, of course we are individuals, but by definition we are part of a group. We are 
we're human beings and human beings need other people. Maybe not all the time, maybe in different ways, but we do need other people and we do need to reach out to other people. That's something I've been thinking about in this isolation too. Not just that I need other people, but other people need need me. And I, I sometimes have to make that effort to, mm. to contact um, people who I know might be less inclined to have contact with, with the outside world. So it worked both ways. It is an interesting thought experiment. And we almost had a global actual experiment with the self-isolation idea. But if a genie came out of a bottle and said to you, what if I gave you more money than you could ever spend? What if I gave you the nicest house you could ever want? What about if I gave you every book that you ever wanted to read and every TV show and movie that you wanted to watch, but you couldn't? hang out with other people, that would be a terrible deal. As good as that sounds, that would be a terrible deal for all the reasons that you're saying. Actually, and I think there's some evidence, Aaron, that that's a recipe for madness. Yeah. Totally, totally isolated. I mean, now we're all isolated in one sense. But if we didn't have some contact, I mean, and let me say, although it doesn't apply to me, sometimes that contact is a religious contact for people. Mm -hmm. They feel in contact with with their God, um, however they define that, that God. And that's obviously one form of contact and it can help keep people alive. And I applaud that contact, but for, uh, in addition to that, and for the rest of us, contact with other people, the kind of horizontal dimension of, of, of contact is crucial. We, literally, we would go crazy, um, people who have been isolated. Um, and we all know that solitary confinement, 23 hours a day, is a recipe to, to drive people crazy. And that's why sometimes, unfortunately, some societies impose it on, on prisoners. 23 hours out of 24 to be on your own is a recipe for going mad. I don't often say this in as many words because there's a lot of history that loads up this statement that we don't necessarily want. But it has occurred to me on occasions that the shed is a congregation of sorts. It does fulfill some of the pastoral roles that have been done by religions over time, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's not to, to give offence to people who, um, who who are more in, inclined to see the, the actual religious, explicitly religious dimension of, mm. of congregations. But absolutely, I mean, um, it's even part of my own history. I saw in Africa that getting together was so important for people and sometimes that getting together was through the church. And I've seen in Western Sydney that for some migrant communities, either the mosque or the um, temple or the church has played an enormous role in keeping people healthy. Of course, there's a religious dimension to that, but there's also the social dimension. Contact with other people is so important, absolutely important in whatever society we belong. And a place where you belong, that's the word, isn't it? A place where I feel like I belong. Absolutely. Uh, yes, that's right. Even if um, I don't talk too much to other people, um, if I'm allowed a little story here, I, I have worked in Gaza quite a lot. And a, a psychiatrist who died, um, unfortunately, not too long ago, was very friendly with me. And he would say to his patients when they came in for mental health support, he would say, do you go to the mosque? And sometimes they were angry and say, what's that got to do with you? You're supposed to be a doctor, not, 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 a, uh, not a priest. Okay, I, I am your doctor and I promise I'll help you. Mm. But I'm still asking you, do you go to the mosque? And he would encourage them. And it made me think about it. And it's true. So yeah. you, it could be fat people, rich people, poor people, 
They don't necessarily talk, but they're there for a common purpose and they're there together. And he said to me, I know very clearly if it's good for their health. He also said, and this is with great respect to those who are religious, when the people had gone away, he said, I'm not a believer myself, John, <laughs> but I know the importance of congregating like this, if it's through the mosque or through a church or whatever. So our, in our case, through the sheds, how important it is to be with other people. Just want to revisit the physical aspect of being in the sheds. One of the other projects that I work on is I work in the Ageless Taekwondo program for uh, for Australian Taekwondo. And it is a modified martial arts program that is designed to help cognitive acuity into old age, to prevent falls, to... Wow. Yeah, so it's a really interesting idea. But every time I'm working on that and it talks about carving new neural pathways by continuing to learn patterns and processes and and I'm constantly reminded that so much of that is what is going on at the lathe or the workbench in a shed as well. Absolutely you've got it right absolutely you've obviously thought as much about this as I have Aaron and you're absolutely right you shouldn't be shy to, to talk about that. I hope before we finish that we'll we'll mention the fact that the, the shoulder to shoulder physical thing is is not been possible during the time of the virus for many people and we have to be thinking of other ways of contacting people um, in the future and for now I think that's one of the big challenges to the shed movement and of course the wireless is important always has been in Australian history but also for the future what are we going to do not just when the virus is finished but during the virus but when it's finished what about people who can't get shoulder to shoulder me asking you now have you been thinking about that it's interesting that you say it because obviously in the course of the Shed Wireless, I'm having lots of conversations. And I know talking to Ted Donnelly recently, this was one of his key challenges is that he's saying we need a mechanism to look after men when they can't physically be in the shed. We need to find mechanisms to manufacture all of the things. It's it's a little bit like how restaurants converted to home delivery. We kind of need to do the same thing for men shedding, right? I think I, I don't have many. I, I wish I had more insights into that, Aaron. But one thing I am, I think, quite convinced of is when people say that older men, and it's often older men who, who use the shed, who are shedders, older men don't get technology. I think we should be careful of that. I think we should be careful. I think one of the challenges is to make technology available to um, men who are not used to it and not to complicate the issue um, enormously. I mean, I belong to an age where um, when I started university, <laughs> we didn't have computers, believe it or not. We had typewriters and we've come through all that and um, people have had to learn how to deal with technology. And I think one of the challenges for the shed is to try to connect with one another through through technology, through what we're doing, through laptops, through and when people say, Oh, I can't do that or they can't do that, they're too old. Be careful of that. It's not so complicated to um to 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 use a if I can do it, anybody <laughs> anybody can do it. And I really feel that that's one of the challenges to make not just the sheds movement male friendly but to make it technology friendly so that people who can't get out to be physically shoulder to shoulder can at least connect through and there's lots of laptops around that don't have to be fancy 
just something that you, like you've done with me. Yeah. Press this button, John, and switch this button. <laughs> Again, this is a an area of passion for me, but I think we get too caught up in the means and not enough in the ends. I mean, you and I sitting here right now, and presumably we're sitting on somebody's kitchen bench who's listening to us right now, or maybe we're in their car or whatever else. And what's actually happening is it's three blokes in a room, albeit two of us virtually, and we're having a chat. And that could be Fijian men sitting around the Tarnoa. It could be African men sitting around the campfire. It could be cavemen from 40,000 years ago doing it. Actually, the ends is exactly the same. It's only the delivery mechanism that changes. Absolutely. And needs must. Um, In Scotland, we say, (laughs) Hafke is a good master. If you have to do something, it will be your master. It will teach you. And people bank now on their phone in Africa. Yes. People have learned that Hafte is a good master. Having to do something has, has forced them to do their banking on a daily basis almost for small amounts of money and money in, money out on their phone. Now, 20 years ago, people had said, to me, uh, when I lived and worked in Africa, people will communicate by phone. I would have laughed at them, but this, it's not true. They, they, if needs and if we adapt the, the, the technology, we can we can find the ways. And I think that's one of the challenges for the shared movement. Let's find ways to contact with one another using technology and other ways, but, but, but using technology. Let's do it. There's out there. There's lots of people with lots of ideas and the ability to to make it accessible to people and not too complicated a way. Not to say that people can't deal with complications, but let's begin with something that's straightforward and easy to access. Well, you've issued a broad challenge there. Let me issue a specific one. And it's not the first time I've done it on the Shed Wireless. For some of you listening, getting this radio show onto a device, a computer, a phone or whatever, and listening to it is the simplest thing in the world. There are other people who could benefit enormously from this and they don't know where to start. So please be that person who gets this into the life of somebody who could use it because we never know who won't be able to turn up to the shed. Or even if you do, it's nice to have the shed in your pocket whenever you need it. So if you have the tech capability to get this into somebody's life, I ask you to do it. And already we're getting great feedback from the sheds who are writing to the show and whatever else. So please make sure as many people as possible are getting access to it. It's easy to ignore. It's easy to turn off if you've had enough, but it's not always so easy to find if you don't know how to get it. Professor John McDonald is a patron of the Australian Men's Shed Association and a director of men's health at Western Sydney University. I can't get enough of our chat, so we'll have another one really soon. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much, Alan. All power to your elbow. Well done. You're listening to The Shed Wireless. Hopefully you heard our chat with our mates from the Irish Men's Shed Association in a previous episode, and we really did get a sense of the state of play in that part of the world and the similarities and differences to the COVID experience there and here. Well, we enjoyed that chat so much, and I trust you enjoyed that chat so much that we thought we'd do it again with a slightly different flavour this time, talking a little bit about the growth and the development of shedding in Ireland and, let's call it what it is, the mateship that formed between our two countries during that process. 
We are joined from Ireland once again by Barry Sheridan, who is the CEO of the Irish Men's Shed Association. Hello and welcome back to The Shed Wireless. Aaron, delighted to be here. Thanks. Uh, Irish Men's Shed founder John Avoy is with us as well. Hi, John. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Yes, great. Thank you. Welcome and thank you for your time once again. And the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association, David Helmers, is with us as always. Hello, David. Hello, Aaron, and welcome back, Barry and John. David, if I can be rude and ignore the guests for a moment, let me come to you first of all and say, what is your first memory of Barry and John? Ah, geez, now, first time I met John personally was in Hobart in 2009, I think it was, the Hobart Conference it was the first time we had we had met each other. and Yeah, that's right. I remember it well. I remember you famously, as soon as I met John, uh, yeah, I shook his hand and said hello and said, uh, Come on down, we'll have a beer. And he said, uh, he said, oh, don't drink. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, there's me and one other guy in Ireland that don't drink and I haven't seen him for a long time. <laughs> but that was following all series. That was probably following on about 18 months to two years of um, communications via email and the odd phone call here and there, John. That would be about right, wouldn't it? That's right, yeah. I, uh, it was a, a long process. I remember we were chatting um, like even before, I think Barry Golden came to Ireland to talk about research he'd done into sheds in uh, mid-2008. And it was even around that time there was a, a connection made and Barry would have introduced me to you and uh, we got the ball rolling. And the rest is history, as they say. As they say. And um, Barry, um, I can't even remember now what year you came on board. What year was it, mate? I think it was 2015, so it was probably, yeah, five years ago now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and that would have been in Dublin, I think it would have been, um, offhand. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it would have been your conference over there, I think, in Dublin at, at, at that event. Would I be right? I think, no, I think the first one was actually Newcastle, your Newcastle conference. Ah, okay. Yep, yep. Oh, I am totally wrong. You're in Dublin the year after. That's it. That's the way it was. Yeah, yeah. You've, got a, you've, got a memory, you've got a better memory than me, mate. But I knew it was around that area somewhere. I wasn't sure if it was over on your patch or if it was over on our patch. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been a, a long and fruitfully rewarding relationship over the years with both both of you two. And, you know, besides the, the, the professional side of it, we've all managed, you know, or except naturally we've all become great mates in the whole process as well. Which is one of the great byproducts of the whole thing. John, you started on it there. Barry Golding visited overseas and he's referenced that when talking about the expansion of shedding internationally in previous episodes of The Shed Wireless. But can you walk us through that relationship and what that had to do with the genesis of the Irish men's shed movement? Sure. Uh, yeah, I remember all that quite well. I suppose even uh, previously to that, around 2006, I remember I, we were working in community development, trying to get men involved in stuff um, in Ireland. And as we know back then, uh, like the vast majority of people who engaged in community health promotion projects or community development were women and, and men were kind of unseen. Um, and we were trying to do a small uh pilot project and my colleague came across this stuff on the internet uh, from uh, Australia at the time and he was saying do you hear anything about this shed stuff and we had a look so that would have been my first introduction um, and then I suppose it was just before the economic crash and there was a bit of money in the economy and there was a bit of money for uh, social ideas 
so we, we were looking at setting up a men's shed and it was just at the time then Barry was coming to Ireland and we just risked sending him an email out of the blue asking could he meet us because we were thinking of setting up one of these sheds. Yeah, I remember I met him in a, a, an airport hotel in, in 2008 um, and it was very informative and it was. There was about four people met me met Barry with me that day. And and that really was the springboard. I stayed in constant communication with Barry for like since really. And uh, you know, part of that was getting back to Hobart the following year, um, to the to the that men's sheds conference and visiting numbers of sheds in Victoria, New South Wales and down in Tasmania. And uh that really was the aha moment for me. I remember coming home from that trip thinking we have to set up an Irish Men's Sheds Association. Um, but like there was one or two other places in Ireland at the time we're thinking about setting up sheds. I think the first shed in Ireland opened almost the same time in Tipperary Town. I had nothing to do with setting that up. And simultaneously, there were sheds in in Arklow and in Mead. Now, the names might not mean that much to our um, Australian listeners, but I suppose the one thing that I took from that first trip to Australia was listening to Dave in particular, telling the story about how the first sheds were around almost 10 years at that stage. But they had driven by Dave, set up the Australian Men's Sheds Association, I think in 2007. And like after 10 years of slow growth, as soon as there was an association, it started to grow exponentially. And uh, that was the one piece of information I based the next 10 years of my life on, really. Um, you know, uh, that was like, OK, let's uh, let's do that in Ireland, too, because there was plenty of people in Ireland thinking about sheds. The, the recession had hit. There was loads of men were unemployed and out of work. But it was having the association piece to support every community that wanted a shed um, was the idea that 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 we stuck to. And I think that proved to be successful. And then and, and Barry was a big part of that journey. Barry Barry uh, Golden, because we obviously have Barry Sheridan on the line, who's equally a big part of that. Um, yes, you know, um, but, but <laughs> he'll he'll get his. He doesn't turn up for a few years yet. He'll get his in. He wanted me too. Yeah, but 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 yeah. So then we set up originally uh, between two thousand and nine and the next year we set up what we call the Irish Men Sheds Forum in Ireland because it wasn't an association because we didn't register as a legal entity and Barry Golden was back in Ireland in a place called uh, uh, Gorey in County Wexford. And I think you were there as well, Dave, or maybe that was a subsequent time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, remember. I was in the Gorey one. It was very good. I had fond memories of that. Yeah, and, and that was when we kind of officially launched the Men's Sheds movement in Ireland. And it was it was really kind of a, a moment when we like asked everyone in the room, you know, who wants to be part of this? And it was like unanimous decision and a fantastic energy. Yeah, so, and, and Barry stayed a great friend to the Irish Men's Sheds Association ever since. John, it keeps coming up here as a theme. There is part of the magic of sheds is the paradox of sheds, that they are individual, they're autonomous, and yet they're also collective. And it's why they grew organically and weren't created in some health agency think tank. But given that, well, first of all, do you accept that assertion? Is that true in Ireland as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the idea had to be transplanted uh, and uh, and then it grew, you know. Uh, but like the whole ethos was that it was the men doing it for themselves in their own way in different communities and that all the sheds are as different as the men that are driving them. And, that, uh, and that's why it worked. Like, I don't know, but uh, in our part of the world, men typically don't like being told what to do. Um, so <laughs> no, we've got that in common. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so so I think that was that was, that was a key factor, and it still is, as far as I'm aware. Okay, so given that fact, then why does a national body matter? Why is it important to have an umbrella sit above that, in your opinion? So I suppose it's not even a. In in one way, it mightn't even be above that. It's kind of almost below that. That we're here to serve the sheds, or we nice, yeah. And um, I think it just gives the guys the opportunity to focus on their own shed, and that there's somebody else out there who are looking after the things that can take up all their time and energy. You know, the stuff that they didn't get involved in the shed to do, they might want to do their work work their community work support themselves or each other like they're not that bothered like spending loads of times like researching government grants or like insurance policies or health and safety policies uh, and to have somebody doing that for them uh, is obviously an important part of the whole thing david do you want to add to that yeah, look, over the you know the last decade i've really you've got to take me hat off to both you know, Barry and John there is the attitude is, is from both has been um, don't reinvent the wheel here. You know, a, a lot of things that we have done here in Australia, and they've, they've learned from the benefit of our hindsight too, I think. It was just they looked at what we had done and just customised it to Ireland, modified it, and now we even, you know, I have to admit we, we borrow things back from now. They're starting to repay the debt to us. You know, in, in piece by piece, um, and there's that, that free exchange of information and lessons learned that's really contributed to the whole, you know, growth of the Minkhead movement. And, you know, I think it stands for itself as what was just a simple idea and the exchange of a few emails has just affected the lives of so many people around the world now. Barry Sheridan, what were you before you were involved with the Irish Men's Shed Association? Yeah, so I had spent my life heavily involved in community development work, so with local development and local government agencies here uh, in a variety of different kind of projects, from IT programs to, uh, you know, uh, community employment programs to literally, you name it, we were kind of managing it, you know, and a lot of that was dealing with, you know, uh, marginalized groups, uh, sometimes men, sometimes older people, sometimes younger people. So it's, I suppose that's the essence of of, of trying to uh, support people and give something back to people in terms of trying to help them along their way was something that I was always really, really interested in, you know. Um, I'll never forget, like, you know, the first time I cr- came across Men's Sheds myself was, was actually reading an article John had done, I think it was in the Irish Times, John, I could be wrong there, I think it was the Irish Times, and it just blew me away. It just blew me away, the whole idea, you know, and I was kind of going, geez, that, that, and at the time, we're, you know, we're talking this, you know, middle recession here. At the time, I just thought it was the, you know, if not the perfect antidote for what an awful lot of people were going through here. And ever since that, I started following what was going on with them, you know, and like the recession in Ireland at the time here, when, when Shed started was, it was pretty, it's pretty grim place for an awful lot of people. And, to be able to do what John did and, and have the foresight to see that something like Sheds could really benefit and have the courage to go after that to, to get it started and get it established uh, was a, it was actually a really brave thing to do. And I think it, it's huge credit to themselves. And, uh, and I know uh, the relationship with Dave and, and Barry Golden and everyone in Australia made that probably a little bit easier. And John kind of said that himself, you know, made that possible, you know, because there's there was something there that we could grab hold of. But, you know, I think uh, the general, 
public in Ireland are eternally grateful to uh, to John and uh, everyone in Australia for helping us bring that uh, shed movement and that shed idea to here because what has happened in the last 10 years has just been you know a roaring success and has changed thousands of lives so it's a uh, yeah, yeah, just delighted to be part of it. Given your background, then you would perhaps have a special appreciation for the point that was being made earlier. Some of the best minds in the world have given years to trying to invent something like this thing that was born and grew organically. Yeah, it, you know, it's, um, I, I think that's something we remind ourselves daily, you know, that, you know, remember where this all came from, you know, so it's, you know, we talk a lot about bottom-up and top-down approaches and really sheds is that grassroots bottom-up approach, you know, and always has been and always will be. And it's, you know, it's important that that stays to the forefront. You know, if we, and Dave will say the same, you know, we get a lot of inquiries from other countries around the world now looking at ourselves and looking at Australia in terms of what has happened with men's sheds. And, you know, often that might come from a more top-down approach. It could be a government agency or a government department looking at what we've done in Ireland um, and looking at something similar for their own countries across Europe or whatever it might be. And really it needs to come from the bottom up, you know, and it's that grassroots kind of um, mind frame. I suppose what has happened is that it shows how important that that is, you know, and I think that's, we remind ourselves of that kind of daily, weekly and all the work that we're doing and we put the, put the sheds at the centre of everything we're trying to achieve, you know, and... Um, and remember what we are in this, and I think John put it across very, very clearly there. You know, as as a national body or a national association, we're here just to support the sheds. We're not we're not here to run the sheds. We're not here to tell the sheds what to do. We're here to support them to make it as easy as possible for the guys in the sheds to be able to go into their shed and enjoy it for what the shed means to them. You know, so it's providing that support service to allow them along the way to make it as easy as possible for them or for new sheds potentially to to get open in an easiest manner as possible um and like that you know you know it's not about reinventing the wheel like literally what we do is a carbon copy of what what dave has done over the last 10 years in australia you know um only we've been able to kind of um you know learn from um things that worked really really well over there and maybe get the heads up on things that mightn't have worked so we don't make the same mistakes our, ourselves kind of thing and that's part and parcel of what it's all about and i think it's it's part of it, well it's a huge part of apart from john obviously having the courage to bring it here but you know having having dave and having having, having that um and barry golden and having that expertise there is the reason that sheds work in this country you know and from from day one what keeps you awake at night, Barry, is as the CEO of the Irish Men's Shed Association and perhaps beyond the immediacy of the current crisis, what's the burr in your saddle in that role? Do you know what? It's, you know, it's, you know, it's evolved over the last, you know, five and a half years or five years for me now, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, it, it doesn't keep me, it doesn't keep me awake at night. It's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm quite optimistic and I'm always kind of glass half full. So it kind of excites me rather than, than than keep me awake, if you know what I mean. You know, the possibilities and the potential in the future, you know, absolutely what's happened with, with the COVID crisis now has been a challenge. But, you know, life life is very boring without challenges, you know, and I'm sure in looking at the far side of this, that, you know, the sheds are, we know the sheds will be there. We know they might be slightly different for a period of time, but we also know that they're going to be needed more than ever. And we also know that what has developed and evolved over the last 10 years in Ireland and and longer in Australia is that there's now a model there that is easily replicable 
And we've proven that here in Ireland and that works. It's tried, tested, it's evidence-based, uh, it's evaluated. So there's a, nearly a model there that we can really use between ourselves and Australia to actually bring this men-shed movement and really make a global impact um, ac across the world with uh, the approach that the men's sheds have, you know, and I think that's that's the exciting bit. You know, the exciting bit is the future in terms of where it can go. The exciting bit in Ireland is for, you know, what we're 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 so ingrained nearly as part of as uh, local community societies now and part of the Irish uh, mindset that you know what we are trying to do is ensure that the sheds are sustainable, that more men and we can deepen the impact of actually what happens within the shed, so we can get more men involved. We can get more younger people involved, that we can continue to make our communities better places, that we can continue to support uh, the most vulnerable in our communities within the sheds and their families and uh, continue to really just become part and parcel of what Irish society is all, all about, but be part and parcel of all the good things about Irish society and really be proud of, of who we are, what we what we've achieved and where it's come from, you know, and that's that's Australia. So, you know, it's you know, look, there's always day to day challenges that might you know make you make you um, think about it. But the big picture is really really bright. The big picture is kind of bright and exciting, and uh, yeah, re really looking forward to it. You know, um, maybe I'd be naive, but that's just my way of looking at things. You know. No, no, not at all. And John, I want to ask you the question as well. And it's not about framing it negatively. It's more about threat preparedness or risk minimization. What worries you about the future of shedding from an Irish perspective? I'm not that worried about the future of sheds, really. I think they're here to stay. Um, I mean, there'll be ups and downs on a journey, uh, same, same as anything. Uh, I think they've established themselves as part of the Irish kind of society and culture in a, in a relatively short time um i think when we were setting out a, a good few years ago we had we looked at other organizations in ireland like the country women's association and said would we ever have as many you know uh, uh you know groups as they do and i think we probably have more now and they're established for something like 100 years um so i think we're here to stay i think um There'll be there'll be ups and downs on the road. Like I mean, obviously the emergence from COVID is a big challenge. Uh, but I think as time changed, the integration of um, technology into how people communicate and stay in touch will become a bigger bigger part of it. Like uh, we're all getting a little bit older. Uh, it won't be that long until until I'm in the shed going. Uh, well age category not that any younger men are excluded or anything and you know hopefully um hopefully yeah sheds will be exciting uh, as ever and that whatever as each new generation of men approach the sheds they'll be bringing a new bunch of ideas and a new bunch of you know uh projects and stuff to work on that will continue to engage themselves and their communities um i i think i think kind of the altruistic nature of the men in the sheds that men go to sheds not to you know not looking for help but to support others and to support their communities and i think that's kind of that attitude will continue to drive the sheds to make sure they're they're successful i think that ingenuity and inspiration that you get every time you walk into a shed is like the greatest resource we have david i know what keeps you awake at night wondering how barry sheridan's ever going to hit a golf ball with that grit <laughs> that's probably about right mate <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, look and playing playing golf with both of these two gentlemen. Everyone who listens to this program regularly knows my love-hate relationship with the game. Um, and John's a very good golfer. And Barry, you 
coming from those traditional Gaelic sports has the traditional hurling grip of the golf club. Um, and that does worry me, um, especially when he does connect with the ball because it goes about three quarters of a mile. Yeah, it just doesn't happen too often, Dave. That's the problem. <laughs> it's it's like cheap carpet, Barry. Never mind the quality, feel the length. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's good entertainment. It's good entertainment. In saying that, he does hit a good ball, too. Gentlemen, we couldn't resist the chance to catch up once again and thought we would take a bit of a look back at how we arrived at this point in time in the Irish men's shed movement with an Australian bent on it. What I would love to do, if possible, is invite you back for a third chat. And what I'd like to look at there is trying to get to the heart because I think in order, if we are going to be successful ongoing we need to understand what it is that is the magic of men's sheds and so somehow the magic that was in Australian sheds was replicated over there and so we might have a bit of a conversation about that the next time we catch up but thank you for your time Barry Sheridan the CEO of the Irish Men's Shed Association. Thank you Aaron, delighted to be with you. Uh, Irish Men's Shed founder John Avoy, thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you again. Yeah, you too, Aaron. And thank you, David, the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association and co-host here on The Shed Wireless. Tune in to upcoming episodes for another chat with our friends from the north here on The Shed Wireless. Now on The Shed Wireless, let's see who's working in the shed. We are headed to Victoria, not too far from Melbourne, to visit Whittlesea Men's Shed. And working in the shed is President Phil Birchdolt. G'day, Phil. Hello, and how are you? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. Before we talk about your men's shed in particular, can you just give us a brief locals look at Whittlesea, please? Quite a famous location. Yeah, Whittlesea is sort of on the outskirts of Melbourne, although it's starting to come into it. Um, we're just down from King Lake, from the mountain there, and just on the edge of the bushfires back in uh, 2009. And uh, it's really a, 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 it's more of a rural town than what it is a, um, an urban one, mm. although we're controlled by an urban council. Did the men's shed exist in 2009? It only just. We, we started in 2008 and we were working out of a little, what they call a kiosk on the showgrounds, which is probably only 10 metres by about oh, three and a half metres. And we just got going there and the bushfires came. Of course, that put the uh, stop on quite a little bit then. I bet. You would have some men in your shed that were affected by those either directly or indirectly, do you? Yeah, we did. And um, because it did come to Humevale, which is right on the edge of uh, Whittlesea. And uh, there's also people there from up on the mountain on King Lake. And they're in our shed and that was also affected, you know, their families and and people they knew were affected too, which, which also affects us all, you know. Indeed. What about the town now? What sort of a place is it? Who lives there? I live there. <laughs> and that's all we need to know. <laughs> um, look, it, it hasn't changed a lot. It's getting a little bit more um, uh, sophisticated, if you like. You know, I think about every third shop is now a cafe <laughs> or a coffee shop. Um, but basically the town hasn't changed a lot. But there are new estates going up which um, sort of starts to change the demographic a little bit. I'm getting the impression you've been there a while. Yeah, I've been in this area probably about, oh, what, what day is it now? <laughs> it's quite a while, probably 15 years or something. 
But I've always, always lived around this northern area of Melbourne now. What's the appeal to you? Look, I, the appeal for me really is the country atmosphere and, you know, the friendliness of people. You can walk down the street and say hello to someone. You know, I, I know my neighbours either side of me. Um, we're in the city, you don't get that sort of interaction, if you like. I really like your website, although I must say there's one or two of the pictures that are on there that are slightly deceiving. There's a few sheds set in Swiss mountains and various other things. Nevertheless, what I really like is one of the things on your introduction page is you basically set out the criteria. And if you don't mind me quoting, I encourage everybody to Google Whittlesea Men's Shed. It'll be the first one that comes up. But what you offer is the opportunity to create and renew friendships and social activities, talk and relax, feel valued among peers, learn new skills or use tools for the first time, or keep old skills honed and productive, pass on skills to others, be involved in community projects, create projects of personal interest, access men's health information and access wood and metalworking equipment. How accurately does that list reflect the day-to-day reality of Whittlesea Men's Shed? I think it's still pretty accurate. Um, we do all those things. Uh, we've got a good little metal workshop with lathe, mill, MIG welders. Um, everything's in there. We've developed up over the years, and we've got an excellent woodworking shop now. And really, we don't push anyone in there. So mm. if, they, if, if they want to come in and do something for themselves, that's fine. If they want to just potter around, that's fine. If they want to help out on projects, that's fine. If they want to do nothing, that's fine. They want to sit down and talk, not a problem. Yeah, and we do a lot of that. Yeah. So really, I think it's still pretty accurate. I think we we still try and aspire to those things, and I still we I think we still achieve them. Do you find there's any typical modus operandi anyway? Do blokes tend to come in a bit quiet, spend a little while looking around before they jump in both feet, or do most of them sort of stride in and pick up the tools? Well, new members come in fairly quiet and um, we just encourage them to walk around and talk to everybody. It doesn't take long before they're into helping someone or something like that. Mm. But the current members will come in um, and just start. We have a coffee first, of course, you have to do that. Nothing happens without coffee. No, it doesn't, no. And they just start to get stuck into it. The supervision is really just keeping an eye on safety and things like that. Or if they need help, you know, trying to get help for them. What's your mix of men? Old. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a mix. <laughs> I think that's a flavour. <laughs> no, look, most of them are retired. Yeah. Um, we do have a couple of younger ones. Uh, and usually they're, they're people that have sort of got um, health problems. You know, they might have had an accident and they can't work. Uh, so they come in there and they can still do things and still talk to them. And that's the biggest thing is talking. Mm. It's, um, you know, we, we open up a lot. We talk about health all the time. You know, if someone's got a problem, we, we talk about it, you know. And it doesn't matter what the subject is. And people tend to bring their health problems up. Not that that's good sometimes because you don't necessarily want to hear them. but uh, And it helps them, you know. And it helps us to understand other different things that can go wrong with you as you get older. But most of them are retired. Um, yeah, I guess that covers probably 95% of our members. I'm interested that you say that it's a place where blokes regularly open up and feel comfortable talking about their health and stuff because 
that isn't universal, you know. There's a lot of places you must have created something culturally there that blokes feel in a safe space, for want of a better term, around blokes that will understand because there are places where men are afraid to talk about that sort of stuff. Well, I think what helped it was um, a few of us probably started to talk about our problems. Mm-hmm. And I think if you hear someone else talking about a problem, then you might throw your two bobs worth in and say, yeah, well, look, I've got this thing here, you know, in my groin that's happening, and, and everyone will come up with an answer on how to fix it, of course, but uh, it helps them to discuss it. And, you know, we talk about our operations, which there's numerous of you could probably talk all day on those, uh, but I think by opening up first, that encourages other people to sort of get on the bandwagon, if you like, and, and a lot of them have got problems. They've got problems with their wives, you know, who have uh, major surgery, who have got cancers, who... Yeah, and we talk about that as well, you know. That's really good. I had a look through and it's apparent that you do quite a bit of, for want of a better term, contract work where people will bring a project to you and you'll put your best and brightest on it and come up with something. But we do. Um, we do do a lot of things. We do a lot of community work. Um, place like community garden, community house, uh, the local schools, the kindergartens, the scouts, um, you name it, yeah, we do a lot of work for them. If they come along, we just do the job. Uh, we also have, we're in a fortunate position. We're located on the showgrounds, and every Monday they have a, a market there. So we open our side door, and we put things out for sale. Oh, brilliant. By doing that, we get a little bit of money in, and we don't get a lot, but, you know, you get $40 a week over 50 weeks or something, it soon adds up. My word. And it's a, it's a few bucks to replace anything that goes wrong or, as you say, fill up the Nest Cafe or whatever else. Uh, we only have international roast. We're pretty lousy up here. <laughs> oh, la-di-da, international roast. <laughs> but you're right. So you've got sort of an outlet for those projects that are happening inside the shed. Yeah, and by doing that, people come along and say, oh, look, I've got this thing at home. Can you help me fix it? Or can you make me a um, toy box for my, my grandchild, you know? And we get a lot of work in like that. So that helps us a lot because that's where we make a little bit of money. And we never charge too much. I mean, you know, it's, if you buy something for $300 in the shop, we'd probably do it for about 150 mm. So, you know, we try and keep everything down. We're not interested. We don't charge a lot, but we just enjoy doing it. But you've got to be sustainable. So you've got to make sure that you've got money coming in. While it's nice to just do a love project or something that you feel like doing, it's a bit of a cherry on top if you know it's going to wind up in somebody's bedroom or, you know, it's a family heirloom that's been able to be repaired or something like that. It's nice when it's got a purpose, right? Well, that's right. That's what tends to happen. You know? Although one time, and I hope that these people aren't listening, um, <laughs> a guy bought in a chopping block and uh, one of that repaired. And it was one he bought when he was up in Northern Territory, and it had a big badge on it, the Garn Railway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has been sitting there for months. I said to someone, look, who owns this thing? What is it? Well, no one knew. So I thought, oh, look, I'll just chop it up for firewood. So I took the legs on that off. I took the badge off and a few other things and cut the rest up. Just after that, I said, oh, no, that's the job we've got to do. He wants it all repaired, you know. So we had to sort of make a new top, repair all the legs. So I don't think it was the original gun anyway, but he was really happy when we finished. (laughs) 
<laughs> you were able to nail the badge back on and voila, huh? Well, I did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. And so the future pretty bright. You say that there's new people moving into the area. You sound like you've got a solid program going there on top of finances. Are things looking pretty good? Yeah, look, it's looking pretty good. Of course, the yeah, um, corona slows things up a little bit. Yeah, of course. Are you all back in the shed now? Yeah, we're all back now. Yeah, we've got our social distancing and our sanitizer and our signs up and uh, all the other things you have to have. So I think we've yeah, we've got we've done as much as we can do to keep people safe. Um, but we're back now. It's pretty well back as normal. Uh, there's some people that still don't come, and that's fair enough because they've got uh, underlying conditions that they really couldn't afford to take a risk. So, yeah, we're, we're back to normal. We're just we're back to working normal, really. What's the key to running a successful shed? What bit of advice would you give to someone listening to this involved in a shed anywhere across Australia or the world, for that matter? Yeah, you've got to have a strong committee, um, people that can actually control things and make sure that things happen. Uh, you've got to also work with the men. You know, you, you can't sort of keep things from them and... Yeah, you know, I will do this, I will tell them after we've done it, or anything like that. It has to be full involvement. And some of the other things, you must have good fundraising. Mm. Uh, because if you haven't got money coming in, you're really not going to get anywhere. And you can get fundraising from, well, Bunnings, of course, is the obvious one. Um, the sausage chisels are an excellent source of income. And mm. the other thing, of course, is grants. You have mm. to apply for as many grants as you can. You don't get them all, but the old ones you get, that helps you keep going. And if you can organise a market on your back door, <laughs> the other side of your roller door, that doesn't hurt either, does it? That helps immensely, I tell you. Not always easy to organise, but if you can get it done, that's a good bonus. But you've got to make it also a place that people want to come to. You know, you can't have a dirty, grotty-looking thing that um, I know some people's sheds are like, and mine's a bit the same at the moment. But you've got to have something where they walk in, they feel comfortable, they walk in and they feel, you know, there's friendly people there. They feel they can just open up and talk. First thing you do when they come out, say, oh, do you want a cup of coffee or anything like that? And you just got to make them feel welcome. I think that's probably one of the things that also that helps make a good shed. Did everyone miss it when they couldn't go? Oh, yeah. They were hanging out to get back. Yeah. We, we had Zoom committee meetings, but uh, we didn't bother trying to get an organised one amongst the men. But we rang up different people different times just to see how they're going. And they're all just hanging out to get back. I'll tell you what it's like with the shed. When we opened up, we opened up from 10 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And they were getting there early. So we made it half past 9 till 2 o'clock. They were getting there early. So we made it 9 o'clock till 2 o'clock. And they were still getting there early. Now we pretty well opened up at 8 o'clock. And they're still outside the door waiting to get in. So... That tells you what a men's shed is like. Mate, it says what your men's shed is like. As I say, you enjoy an excellent reputation, and I think this conversation shows that it might not be the word that you use, but that you've created a, a culture there that is really, well, it's a recipe for success. So I appreciate you sharing a little bit of that recipe with us today, and uh, thank you for working in the shed on the Shed Wireless. Thank you very much, Aaron. Really good to meet you and talk to you. That is the president of the Whittlesea Men's Shed in Victoria, Phil Birchdold. 
We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, thanks to Federal Minister for Regional Health, Regional Communications and Local Government, Mark Coulton. Thank you to Barry and John from Ireland, John McDonald, and all of our guests and contributors. Next episode, you will meet... Helen Barker, the first ever woman to be elected onto the AMSA Board of Directors, will join us on the show. We're available via certain community radio stations. Ask yours where you can hear us. If they don't have the show, put them in touch with us and we'll help them out. But the easiest way to find us is via Apple iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or Red Circle or wherever you access podcasts. If you find us, subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you without you even having to remember that we exist. And please rate and review so others can find us more easily. But most of all, please share through email, through newsletters, word of mouth, ring a mate, give him the tip, send the shed wireless via the shed telegraph. And we are here anytime via email, theshedwireless at menshed.net or just go to the AMSA website, www.menshed.org, and see what's going on with the Shed online while you are there. You might want to play around with a few of those sayings and adages on there. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis or just some concerns, you can call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 7899. And for a list of national helplines and websites, just visit Beyond Blue. Of course, you can access all of those resources from our website. So on behalf of David Helmers, I'm Aaron Carney saying thanks for listening. We'll see you next time around on The Shed Wireless. Mm-hmm.